Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our WEMCAST podcast. As always, I'm one of your WEMCAST hosts, Dr. Shauna Pandya, General Practitioner from Canada. And today we are going to talk about living the extreme medicine life with Dr. Johannes Svensoy, an avid mountaineer with an impressive background in humanitarian medicine, expedition medicine, um, a skydiver, a rescue diver, who has been across all domains from working on the Thai Burmese border, tackling difficult issues in men's health to working on biosensor technology during his PhD in the COVID era. So we have a lot to talk about. Johannes, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Shona. It's, it's a delight to see you again and talk to you again. And thank you for the nice introduction. Yeah, you know, um, I can't wait to d- dig into it, but let's start at a high level. So you have this incredible background in disaster, tropical aviation, offshore humanitarian expedition medicine. Like if there if there was a tick box or bucket list for expedition and extreme medicine, I think you would have hit all the domains. How did you get started in this? Oh, yeah, wow. Um, thank you. <laughs> Where did it start? That's a good question. Uh, I believe things kind of evolved through my medical career, or even before that, uh, I had a broad, very broad field of interest from art to space. And as I say, I was doing mountaineering, kayaking, diving, parajumping, and, and also loved to travel and meet new people, and learn about other cultures. Uh, and I, I think I brought this uh, broad field of interest into, uh, into medicine and that leading me to a specialization in disaster medicine and doing humanitarian work and getting trained in aviation and offshore medicine. So and was it, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I just remember that one of my uh, best and earlier advices uh, for choosing speciality was, was to define how I wanted to work uh, rather than just focusing on what I wanted to work with. Uh, so yeah, medicine is a lot about choosing fields, right? So instead Absolutely. of setting up um, hematology against surgery, um, and this is my advice to to med students and others as well, like think think how you how you are as a person. Like, are you a thinker? Are you a doer? Do you want action? Do you want to do the kind of detective work, diagnostics? Uh, do you want to work daytime, night shifts? Um, in hospital, pre-hospital, you want to be a specialist in one field or a generalist. And this kind of led me into emergency medicine kind of quickly, uh, having the broad interest field and also being able to both work in hospital and pre-hospital. And was there ever a conscientious point, even before going into medicine, saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by medicine, the ability to do good to people in a vulnerable position ver- uh, versus I also, I know I'm an adventurer at heart. You, you said you were a kayaker, mountaineer. Did you ever make that conscientious decision before you got into medicine to say, hey, maybe there's a way to combine the two? Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, medicine wasn't my first, first field. Um, having parents coming from total other fields. Um, I didn't know much about the health health experts, uh, aspects. So, but I, I, I knew I kind of want to do good. Uh, I have that kind of want to help others gene from, uh, from my mother. 
so I started out with, with studying law. Uh, and I found out I wasn't especially good at that. So, so my job would probably just staying there stamping, stamping papers <laughs> rather than actually being able to do something. Uh, so that led me into, I first did nursing, uh, worked for a few years and then did medicine. And I never, I would never do it differently. Now, I want to hone in on one of your specific experiences. Um, so when we first met, you told me about your your experiences and adventures working along the Thai-Burmese border, um, and then specifically doing some very important work and publications with respect to a little-known men's health issue. So tell us about that. How did you get involved, um, and how did that end up growing? Oh, um, I have a very good friend here in Oslo, uh, which um, uh, with family from Myanmar. So I've been following the kind of conflict there since around 2000, up against to the demonstrations in 2007. And and Myanmar has this kind of extremely dark history with dictatorship and oppression uh, for the last 60 years. Um, and it was... 2012 I first traveled over and I've been been over about four times um, after that and mostly working at the um, Ma Tao clinic which is a small rural clinic on on the time Thai Burmese border um, mostly providing free medical help for Burmese inside Thailand and uh, some coming off the border and for the refugee camps uh, along the border, which there are a lot of, unfortunately. So, so we did some outreach medical expeditions into, into the villages, um, doing some surgical outreach, uh, but mainly we were doing um, or I was in the trauma surgical uh, part of the clinic, um, caring from everything from burns to infections, motorbike accidents, uh, mine um, accidents, etc. cetera. Uh, but, but this one thing I remember, which we should take up is, is the penis injections, um, which is, um, what is this practice of um, self-injection Thing, oil, usually coconut oil or palm oil, into the subcutaneous skin of, of the penis. So along to make it uh, larger, not longer. And, and this, I, I've never heard about this before when I was there. So I was kind of curious. And the, throughout the times I was there, we have more and more. And I kind of saw that we need this, this as a prevention problem, like people are not going back into the villages and telling others not to do it. There is a, both a stigma um, and yeah, it's, it's hard, hard for people to talk about this openly. So I, I started doing research, looking at how many of these we had and did actually the world's largest study on about 700 of, of the patient throughout the five year period on this mapping all the symptoms they have, what kind of treatment we did, which is basically a surgical treatment where we have to remove all the skin around the penis and then transplant from, from the thigh. Um, 
if you if you want to be, <laughs> learn more about this, you can you can search up my article. But I just have to say there are pictures in there, so so be advised. Fair fair but, warning. <laughs> Um, so going in on that work, um, I know that, you know, it wasn't just, it, you were pretty involved from beginning to returning to pre working to prevent this. So you identified the problem, you looked at the scope of the problem. Um, and then if I remember correctly, you actually went and created public service announcements around this. Can you tell us about how that evolved? Yeah, um, after... After actually getting to know how big this problem was, because they didn't even know in the clinic, um, because of course there were written journals, um, markings in books, so we didn't didn't have the statistical overview of how many people uh, came in with this problem before I started to write this down, and. Um, yeah, after, after making this, we had this whole discussion on how to prevent. And my sister is a graphic designer. Uh, so she got the brilliant job of uh, putting together, or we put together a brochure uh, showing um, basics of men's health, which is, is taboo and not much talked about uh, here, which I found out that women's health and reproductive health is a very known issue and thought throughout um, the health or it's it's more preached around in the in the villagers but men's health or men's sexual health are are not a prioritized area so we made made this brochure which is still used in um, in sexual education uh, around the villages and in Burma, which is which is really great, and it's also in in the article. That's that's wonderful. And just to dig into that a bit deeper, was there any initial resistance or shyness, or as you were saying, this is taboo, and you know, it's what I think that's some of that's universal, um, whether we're dealing with a clinic in Norway or Canada. Um, for for some reason, you know, people are embarrassed to talk about sexual health. But you know, particularly in some cultures here, it seems that men's health was, you know, kind of the the word that you can't say. And um, when you, how did you handle that initial resistance, and how did you overcome it? It has kind of two aspects to it because on on the one hand, uh, this is like you say taboo and difficult to talk about and on the other hand it's it's self-inflicted so if they went to a normal hospital they would not get uh, get any help uh, you would need either in insurance and even those wouldn't uh, wouldn't cover self-inflicted uh, harm if you say it like that so so the and the taboo was not not just for the people coming there but those working at the clinic. So um, I think it was the second time we had this kind of sexual, um, um, men's sexual health um, education for, for those working at the clinic. So they could talk to young men and ask them like, have you heard about these kind of penis injections? That's not a good idea. Uh, and here are some alternatives um, and, and other things like don't, don't put oil into your penis. But then I, I came back the second time 
And everybody was like, or I was asking them, like, how is it going with the education? And they were like, no, 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 we can't talk about this. Like, this is difficult. And, and that's when, when we started making the brochure to, to make it easier or just the way that they could give the brochure and then people could read about that and then have that as an opener for asking, asking questions and getting more into what, what the problem actually is and showing the symptoms, showing the problems that this, this uh, practice can lead to. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, you, you were able to go from identification to saying, Hey, let's do something about this. So over what period of time did you follow um, up on this project? And then were you, were you around long enough to start to see the, the fruits of your public health labors? Did you see any reductions even by word of mouth? I would love to go back and see that. I was following up until 2017. And after that, I'm not sure, actually. Uh, I know that they are using the brochure inside uh, Burma for um, education. But new numbers would be interesting to see. But I don't, I don't really know. And it's very difficult because it's not just to take the... Um, the uh, statistics out uh, I would go, have to go there by myself and see through the books and count it up yeah exactly and then even broach the topic and then see you know what is the reduction and how what was the most effective way was it the brochures was it you know screening in clinic was it um, following up x amount of time after having kind of planted the seed that's saying hey there's other ways to do this um you know that's that's so exactly. That's so fascinating. And again, you know, there's no matter what corner of the world you go to, there's always going to be something that's um, very cultural, that's going to find its way into medicine. Um, yeah. So so let's step back a little bit and talk about your your background as a whole, because you've been at all all ends of the spectrum when it comes to extreme medicine. Where else have you have you been um, when it comes to offshore disaster tropical um, medicine? Um, I was working uh, slightly in Burma, no, in uh, in Uganda, um, with childcare and vaccines mostly, mm-hmm. uh, and it's mainly mainly there and and outreach around in uh, Karen State in Burma, uh, doing outreach in villages. Mm-hmm. So humanitarian part, it's. It's mainly those areas, yeah. How do you approach that sensitively? Um, as you know, you know, we once upon a time it was sort of. I think we approach global health in the wrong way, saying that hey, I'm going to do good for these people, um, but un- unintentionally approaching it as a savior type um, agenda. And and so, based on your experience, you were you were there on the ground. How did you work with the community to? make sure that this was long lasting impact and also making sure you had buy-in from the communities you worked in? It's, it's really a good question. And, and these are often problems with humanitarian, humanitarian work that uh, a lot of people, organizations, NGOs want to, want to do good, uh, but they don't really know how. And they come in and throw money on the problem and think that's good. But you kind of have to either either get to know someone in the community and learn what are the actual needs here. 
like what are the long-term needs and you need to build that up. You can't come in, fill the gap because then the gap is going to be there when you travel out. And that was what I learned, what we can say the hard way the first time when I came in. Um, I, I did help out with a lot of things they, they didn't have from before, but when I left, uh, it was back to the same. So that was when I kind of saw that this problem has to be handled differently. And also seeing a lot of examples from other fields of humanitarian work. Uh, for example, uh, building a child care center, um, but not having the people to work in it or not the money to, to follow up. Um, so, so you actually have staff there for the next 10, 20, 50 years. So there are a lot of sad stories on that. Um, people coming and giving to communities, filling, filling a gap with themselves and then traveling out. And just like you say, there's, there's not any follow-up long-term thinking. And once you'd kind of, you said you learned this the hard way, how did you take this forward to your, your next, um, you know, your next location? What would you do differently or how would you bring this up with the team um, to make sure that, you know, you learned and were also applying these learned lessons learned? Yeah. So when I was there on several occasions for about three months uh, and I, think even from the second time, I kind of saw that um, I'm, I'm not doing much by coming here and providing for a few patients during that time, but I do more if I do education, if I do um, outreach and making brochures that can be used for, for the time I'm not there. Uh, and also it, it's a lot about motivating the people there uh, that they're not forgotten by the world so so all these things kind of matter and it's it's so important like you say to to follow up uh, on that field and not go anywhere help go back and then forget about it because the people are going to be there um, and they need the motivation to to keep going um, and, and to build up what's what's not around. Yeah, you know that's 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 a really key point you've hit on. Did you find any strategies? And and perhaps it's different for every culture and every group and every minority that you're dealing with. Did you find um, any particular strategies that were effective for building rapport? That's a good question. I, I think that, well, ed education is, is the key point. Uh, but, but firstly, like educate yourself on, on the cultural uh, things and how things work around the clinic. Uh, so I guess a lot of humanitarians that, that come to a rural clinics stamp in and then take, take with them all everything they know from, from their hospital, from their way of doing things and try to implement that, that might not, or usually from my experience, it's not, not the way to do it, but being there, working alongside uh, the staff um, 
trying starting to do some um, milder education on some fields uh, and that's then getting this bond that yeah you're you're on the same page you're on the same team um, and then yeah educating them in what they need not exactly yeah and anything else if you see like don't bring your interests in there because that's like i had this whole mental idea of how it would be to travel out like what would i need to know um to to deal with this and then i came out and i kind of saw it's it's very different than than i expected i think you know that's that's kind of the theme that comes um, from everyone you can always have a plan but you have to be ready to change that plan once you get your boots on the ground um and i'm sure that you've you've had that experience across all these domains that you've been in so let's let's talk about your time in maritime medicine um was this before after how did you know what were your experiences there how did you get into this aspect of um austere environment medicine um, I was working as a GP and um, as, as your interest is in expedition medicine, austere, isolated environments, like the most isolated we have here in Norway are, are of course, Antarctica and stuff, but also all the oil rigs uh, we unfortunately still, still have. Uh, so, so a lot of work. Uh, from there are to follow up what kind of medical help and also screening everyone who's going abroad, either seafarers or uh, offshore workers uh, to prevent, what to say, disasters going, happening uh, out there um, with the personnel because they have very limited resources. On one big oil rig, there could be one intensive care nurse, uh, and it could be a doctor covering for three to five fields, which is which is not not nearly enough. And there are there are always some with medical training, but this is also limited. So trying to prevent things from happening, just like in space, just like in every austere environment before every expedition. Um, prepare and mitigate so so the problems won't happen and and this kind of hit me as as a really cool thing in medicine that you can actually do preventive medicine with a bit different population that's not yet patients um that's really astute and i think that's that's really key that prevention you know it's going to be so much more powerful and save you so much self so much time and effort later on if you can you know look ahead of um of what's coming down now with the type of medicine you practiced what would you mostly see on the rigs would it be um trauma would it be mental health would it be some combination it's a lot of minor trauma uh, because this is very physical work um like it's it's drilling it's large equipment um, it's it's the whole sea environment, which is really, really, what do you say, trying trying to kill you. Um, sea water, you have, yeah, 
and and oil what do you say um, when there are spills around so this is very much physical work which which causes injuries um, like mostly that's the problem but of course like in as we call it extreme medicine in extreme environments you also have all the normal stuff uh, so you can't you can't prepare yourself enough and as everywhere else like the normal the normal most usual problems will be the most usual problems there as well so once you establish this pattern of minor trauma on top of everything else um what types of interventions would you bring into play to help you know lessen the workload later on In, in this environment, it's it's about training. Um, basically, like like we do here in Norway, we try to do peer uh, training. So everybody has a general idea of what to do when uh, when something happens, like basic first aid. And here in Norway, we are on the world top of teaching CPR to the general population. So so even from um, uh, from from the beginning of school age, uh, kids are taught how to do basic CPR. Um, so so we have the quickest time of peer uh, CPR training, and I think it's it's exactly the same there, giving everyone a basic idea of how to do first aid, and especially um, with major, uh, minor, or major trauma, um, and and also then everybody will have an idea on how to help out when something happens. Like I say, there could be one, two, just a few uh, health personnel on this rig, and then they might not be available, or at least if there's an accident and there's several uh, injured, they, they would need help from everyone there. So there's also training uh, before you go out so with, where everybody has to, what do you say, be a part of, of the response to, to a larger uh, accident happening. So everybody gets these trainings uh, out there before they are really even allowed to go out. So it sounds like that team training aspect is critical to, to keeping everyone safe. Um, with your with your resume, how did you go about going from one field to the next? Did you say, did you know from the outset, hey, I'm interested in tropical medicine, expedition medicine, um, all of this? Or did you, would you be in one field and then say, okay, I've gotten what I want out of this. Um, now let's, uh, I've heard about this opportunity in aviation medicine. Um, where did you go to next after that? And how did you do it? I'm... As I said in the beginning, I think it's kind of evolved, but also being a positive yes person, jumping every opportunity that that felt interesting, that seemed interested, interesting to me, uh, kind of gave me this not linear uh, career path, but a bit of this and a bit of that, um, and. When you when I look back now, it all makes sense. But kind of 
like you say, I didn't have a clear idea from the beginning. I didn't follow um, a straight line, uh, but more following my interest points. And I, like I said earlier, I, I wish I kind of was asked that question earlier, like how, how do you want to work? And then I would have a more clear uh, idea of, of course, I love to work in the mountains. Ex extreme pre-hospital medicine, emergency care is, is brilliant. But I had to do these steps to kind of find out um, the, the fields you could, or how you worked in the different fields. So it took me some time doing a lot of small, of course, fun things on the way to, to kind of grasp what, what I really wanted. Um, I think you're spot on, you know, all too often where we hear follow your passion and, you know, for those who know what their passion is, you know, they want to be a cardiac surgeon from the day they're born. That's fine. But I think the way that you're, you've approached it, you know, fact finding saying this seems interesting to me, let's pursue this, say yes to this. Um, um, and knowing that you like everything, I think is a good way to go about it. Um, how did that bring you to tropical medicine? I guess that was the humanitarian aspect and also the interest in travel and learning about other cultures. Because as cultures evolve, uh, it, it's a lot around what's happening and what's the problems and what are the potential problems. Like in, in Burma, they uh, build houses on sticks because the flood is coming. And with the flood, you have diseases. Uh, so... So all this kind of learning to understand a culture, uh, you can do a lot with medicine. So, so traveling and working was, was my kind of main go-to. And I, I love Southeast Asia. I love Burma. So tropical medicine um, and also in Africa became kind of the most interesting. And, and they have the most, I don't know, scariest uh, diseases out there as well um, with all the parasites worms etc uh, which are both terrifying and extremely interesting so I, I, I will agree with you <laughs> yes there's some instagram accounts i follow on tropical medicine that are both too fascinating to look away from at the same time so horrifying that you hope you never run into it Absolutely agree. <laughs> so with that, let's talk about your interest in um, pre-hospital and disaster medicine. You hold a master's from uh, leading European institutions. Um, so what, what geared you towards this and how have you focused your time since obtaining that master's um, in disaster medicine? So when I was in Myanmar, of course, this is this is a conflict area and has been for a long time. So the second time I was there, there was um, huge conflict going on in in Karen State, um, and and seeing this kind of disaster happening, thinking about how we prepared and how we responded uh, to that, gave me a keen interest in in how to respond to how to prepare for how to simulate and train for um, any disaster anywhere 
And I was also working at the Oslo University, now Oslo um, Emergency Ward, when, when the bomb hit, hit Oslo in 2011. So also from, from working in that kind of environment in, in Oslo, uh, this was the same as, um, as the island shootings. And also uh, working up after that with, with follow-up of families and also the whole community um, that this had inflicted, what do you say, wounds that, and trauma that would, would stay with them forever. I, f- I find this very interesting. So, so that's what led me into um, the Master in Disaster Medicine, which, which takes everything from... Uh, risk assessment in the beginning, trying to prepare uh, and making uh, plans for preparing what kind of equipment you need, etc., to the uh, the response in itself. We did a lot of uh, big live exercises with with the Italian uh, military and the Red Cross there uh, during this training, and then afterwards writing reports, looking at lesson learned, what, me- what went wrong. I remember one big exercise we had in a tunnel with ammonia uh, tanker uh, that crashed with two buses and three cars. And we had 120 casualties, which this was a live exercise. So we had med students um, with makeup and they everybody had their own role. They were a person acting out how, how they were terrified, like who they missed, who, what, what kind of problem they had. And in, in all these kind of big exercises, the, the biggest lesson learned, the biggest problem is always communication. It is inside or it's towards the hospital. It's uh, it's with the police, fire, and and the health personnel. It's it's always communication, and this is what you have to train and drill. You need these big exercises with all all the personnel who is gonna respond to a major incident. You need those together, and you need to train together. And uh, yeah, so this is. This is what I learned. And also using, uh, I would never think about having a pandemic happening in in my country and now being part of that response here. Yeah, we're going to talk about your COVID work in a second here, but I want to get some more of your insights on communication breakdowns, because that is so interesting to so many of our WEM audience, you know, who deal in all manner of um, austere and highly operational environments. Where do these communication breakdowns occur and what kind of fixes in your experience um, help mitigate those breakdowns? So closed loop communication all the time. when you get a message, respond back the message, so you know it's you know the person giving it know that you understood it. And when it when it comes to major incident uh, re- responses, uh, every every country every part has their 
their culture, you can say, uh, also for communication. Uh, and this is often difficult to, um, to cooperate if you haven't have had the training together. Uh, and this was a big thing during, during the response in 2011 in the bombing and the shootings in, in Norway. And afterwards, we, we got the same kind of uh, communication equipment uh, throughout who made it much easier to communicate between uh, fire police and the health uh, response uh, during, during a major incident. And the thing is that this, this was not a specialized system for major incidents, but this was the system that was used every day. And the, uh, a learning point is to, in, in an extreme situation, I don't have new equipment to use, like use the thing you use daily. And when it comes to communication, like use the communication systems you use daily. And if that's not good enough, like take the things that you're supposed to use during a major incident and use that daily. So, so when something happens and you know your brain is gonna freak out because of the incident, you, you know what you do, you have drilled through this, you have simulated and tested and done all, all the, what do you say, mistakes before you're in that situation. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it's that red telephone analogy for using a black telephone every day of your life. Don't use the red one in a crisis. Um, exactly. so, so, you know, for those who may not know what the closed loop communication looks like, what does that look like to you? So an, an easy example is if, if I need help with something, like I need you to bring out adrenaline, I would say I need adrenaline, you would respond back, um, I, will, I will go get the adrenaline. So it's basically repeating back, uh, not just saying yes, and then I'm not sure if you really got got the message but repeating the message back yeah maybe maybe i heard nora noradrenaline and bring you back the wrong thing so yeah that's where okay. my mind went too it's a code situation it's exactly you know 50 like one one of uh, epi in one of epi has been put in so um you know it's it's so yep. key um the other thing i want to know about your background um is you do so much not just medicine that's extreme, but you, you do all manner of extreme sport. You're, you're into mountaineering, skydiving, um, you're a rescue diver. These are all very operational, dynamic environments. Are there lessons that you've pulled from your experiences here back into your medical practice? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there is. And I, I would say prepare, prepare, prepare. Um, like prepare mentally and uh, physically know, and know your limits and your environment and your equipment and prepare for changes in all that. Um, so being in, um, in environments that I'm not, what to say, comfortable in or not used to being, uh, knowing knowing the equipment you have and also knowing your limits is, is of major importance. 
I remember one time we did this medical expeditions in expedition inside Burma. Uh, and it, it was during the monsoon. So we had this hard rain on the roof all night and we're sleeping on bamboo mats. Um, and we were doing surgical outreach uh, mostly and it was all daytime. But one night we had this woman, young woman coming in uh, and she was in labor. Uh, and I remember I was in no way prepared for this. Like mentally, um, I, I was not. So by the time um, she, she come in, I started just overthinking. And before I got my med kit out and uh, fresh water, the baby was out. And, and I, I just overthought, but while my colleagues there and the medics, they were kind of, yeah, not overthinking. They were mentally prepared for something could happen at any time during the night, etc. So even a procedure I was familiar with during daytime, I was just not in that mental room of this happening and I was also exhausted because of the rain and not getting enough sleep so so having that kind of thought and taking care of yourself during an expedition or during this kind of outreach uh, work is is essential actually taking care of yourself was it's not that long ago this was taken into the the doctor's oath and I think that should be in, in every, every field um, that taking care of yourself, uh, you, you have to put on your own mask first, right? You have to take care of yourself because before you can take care, care of others. Uh, so this is something I really, really learned a lot from um, this, this being not mentally prepared and then overthinking uh, so uh, yeah I think and uh, the way to mental prepare uh, like doing exercises back to the disaster medline doing live big exercises so you mentally prepare yourself how situations will look like is is really really important and it's, it's just there you can learn a bit how to improvise, um, but also in in the idea that you, you have a mental image of what's going to happen, you can also make yourself a plan B, a plan C. And then if things doesn't work out, you go to plan B and they work out or you go to plan C. So I think in that way, um, the, the stress prevention you can do by yourself going through what is the worst that can happen when when something is about to happen or when you're on call or you're in an environment where something could happen is is of major yeah. importance i wholeheartedly agree with you and maybe this is something that we should work really hard to bring into you know early medical training is that that mental rehearsal the contingency planning and most of all that self-care that you can't set yourself on fire to keep someone else warm because there's yeah. only one of you um 
And I think that's super relevant now in the era of COVID and the pandemic. And, you know, life is so different for so many of us. And I I know you for a fact um, have had to switch tracks like many of us. You've done some very critical work at Oslo Hospital. So tell us about what you've been doing during the pandemic. Yeah, so before the pandemic, I was working as a GP and some in the emergency ward. And I had a year planning for doing training in in space medicine. Uh, But then COVID hit. It hit Norway in March uh, last year. And I was quickly uh, engaged in putting up the the tents for for testing and also in coordination for for tracking um, the, the disease spread and how to how to make a larger response. Um, we had the shutdown of, of the whole community very, very quickly. And luckily uh, everyone followed that. So we, we were able to control the disease pretty quickly. So having a few waves after that, but, but during that I've been mostly engaged in the infectious disease department, uh, both following up patients and also doing testing or coordinating testing and, um, and tracking the disease. Uh, and this is actually really, really interesting because you, you will have this small kind of outbreaks here and there, um, e- even when you have a low number of, uh, of people with COVID. And it, it's so important to kind of track down everyone um, that has been in, in the environment or together with this one person uh, to, to stop the spread. So we, we're having people being very cooperative with giving out who they've been around and people also isolating themselves. And also for the last months here in Oslo, it's been advised to only be together with two persons uh, at a time and maximum five to 10 during one week. So it's been, it's been really harsh. And I think a lot of people around feel, feel that as well, that now it's kind of enough, but it, it's so, so important that, that we follow this because yeah, this, this is taking its toll and a lot of countries are really, really struggling at the moment. So I would say we've both been lucky and we, yeah, How also, had the... a, also had a great response here in Norway. Yeah, it sounds like you, um, uh, you know, at the, at the bigger picture level um, did a good job of, um, you know, preventing spread. Has that changed at all with the rise of variants? Um, have you found yourself in more dire straits or because you're maintaining these strict um, distancing and lockdown measures, um, have you been mostly okay? There was a big discussion to, to open up more um, before the mutations hit just over Christmas, uh, which led to a new new shutdown and it's basically at least in uh in the major cities it's it's been a lockdown more or less since since new year's so this has been harsh like every shop is closed uh, all restaurants etc 
Uh, and it's been really important for, for the spread. It was a big discussion on, on the borders because we have a lot of uh, work travelers coming into the country and that's kind of needed for, for the industry and also health workers, uh, which we are reliant on. So it, it's been a di big discussion if we would close the borders uh, totally or how that, that would be. And that has absolutely changed after the mutations. But also how we see the disease, like sometimes it, it almost feels like a new kind of disease, the way it spreads uh, is very much different to what we were used to from March until, until Christmas. Um, like even, even in a household or people being, being around, they would not uh, get sick if, if they were um, doing proper hand hygiene, keeping distance, etc. But now we, uh, we see a lot more spread um, from, from one outbreak than, than we did earlier. Yeah, it feels like things are constantly changing. You know, we still have to be on our toes and we still have to, as you say, keep thinking about these contingencies because yes, we have vaccines now, but now there's variants and there's double variants. So it's exactly yeah. as you say, keep being prepared. Um, so the other thing I want to touch on is that you have um, embarked upon a PhD this pandemic doing interesting work with biosensors, which has application for both the pre-hospital care and potentially for COVID care. Um, so tell me, tell me about that. So this is a project that started out from Oslo University Hospital, from um, the National Advisory Unit for Pre-Hospital Emergency Medicine, where I'm, I'm uh, engaged now in this PhD. Uh, so it's about home monitoring during um, and on COVID patients. So. As this is a research, uh, we, we randomize uh, the patients into two groups. One group is, is uh, followed up by us through a self-reporting form, and the other one gets a lot of equipment. Um, and they get um, pulse oximetry, which measures the amount of oxygen you have in your blood. We have a temperature, uh, blood measure, uh, blood pressure measurement, and... Um, and we have this bed sensor, which is the exciting bit about it, uh, that can actually measure pulse and respiration just by uh, being close to the matter. So it actually measures the, the waves the body sends out, uh, a bit like Newton's third law, where you have all the balls and you slip one and the other pops out without all the other moving like we we measure the waves the body sends out with each heartbeat and respiration in in the mattress so this has implications also to to being able to measure uh, through clothings for example in the winter in norway we can use this pre-hospitally to to at least get uh, heart rate and um uh, respiratory rate and from that heart rate variability and we have a calculated stroke volume which we are now working into actually giving us a cardiac output which is really exciting because then basically have the blood pressure measurement without needing to undress people to put on um, wow. a measure. 
That is very novel and game changing. What is the what's your threshold right now for distance um, that away from the patient at which you can detect these parameters? Um, this is the kind of difficult part with the sensors because they are extremely sensitive. So so they can they can be what do you say you can have several layers of clothings and over mattress and then the mattress. So, so the distance is not really the problem. It just has to be like this, like this ball in this experiment. They have to be uh, in touch with each other. So actually sending the waves through uh, all the material. Uh, but with that, with being so sensitive, it's also a problem with noise. Because if any of these materials are, are scratching on each other or or just moving, uh, that will represent in, uh, in the data. So we have a lot of work ahead of us to, to actually be able to implement this uh, properly. But yeah, we are now using it for uh, on-home monitoring, and that works for heart rate and respiratory rate, which is hugely exciting. Wow. And, and also an important work because in the beginning of the pandemic, we saw that patients were isolated in, in the uh, basement part of, uh, of the apartment or the house or in, in their own separate rooms uh, and, and not with the family. So, so the family wouldn't see deterioration in the patients like, like normal. And a lot of the patients uh, we, um, we were admitting at that time was was really really ill, so we needed a way to uh, to see how or kind of how to predict uh, when the patient would get worse and then as early as possible admit that patient for observation uh, in a hospital unit. So this is actually what we are doing now. That's awesome. Um, both the technology and the way you've pivoted, you know, from everything from early detection of poor outcomes to now that we know about the severity of long COVID and its implications and follow up, um, you know, there's so many directions this could go. So that's, you know, kudos yeah. to you for embarking on this work. So in the final minutes here, um, we cannot get away without talking about our mutual love for space medicine. <laughs> you and I, um, we have had amazing adventures together, whether it was, um, you know, walking the streets of Edinburgh at the last in-person WEM conference to spending two weeks in the Mars desert on a simulated Mars mission. Um, how did your love for space start and where are you going next with that? I think that started from when I was young, looking up at the stars. And I remember getting all the stories about Northern mythology uh, and those and Greek mythology represented in, in the stars and the planets. Um, and also how, how the environment is so, so different, but the minerals and where everything comes from is exactly the same uh, throughout our galaxy. And, and learning that, how, how small we are, kind of gave me an awe to... To, to being also minor, but also part of the whole thing. So, so having this 
love for for space and uh, the whole universe. I think that's always been there, but it wasn't until um, going into extreme medicine and being at the World Extreme Medicine Conferences, I kind of understood that this was actually a career path and this is actually something you can you can work with and there are others also working with this because um human human space flight is not a big thing in norway it's not prioritized we are sending up a lot of um satellites and there's a lot of research on um on on space uh how to get minerals out we have we have a module on the perseverance doing um, doing radar for looking for water traces etc so we have a lot of big technology out there but human spaceflight not that much so i'm really working now to kind of build up that and hopefully uh, in this application period we'll have a norwegian astronaut hopefully are you are you going to apply for the European Space Agency application? We'll see. Uh, I'm I'm more of the guy that would be behind and um, and supporting those going up, um, but we'll see. I leave that question hanging. <laughs> well, we're definitely going to have you back for a part two um, if if you are the next Norwegian astronaut, um, but. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, in closing, um, I want to ask you, do you, are there any bucket list items um, on your extreme medicine wish list as you go forward through your incredible career spanning all manner of extreme medicine environment? Um, for now, it's been a year of, uh, of not, that's not much happening. So I'm, I am going back to Svalbard, which is uh, one of the more extreme isolated places in Norway. It's a small island between between Norway and Greenland. Uh, and I also have family on Iceland. So as soon as they open up a bit, I'm going over there and I'm going to check out the volcano, which is currently going. Uh, which, yeah, currently uh, spitting out lava. Wow. Okay. So you you really are. <laughs> and yeah, it, it's such a long list, you know, so there, we could be is. talking for hours, but let's, yeah, that's at least the two first things. That I, I approve. A volcano is exactly what I would expect from your <laughs> career so far. Dr. Johannes Svensoy, thank you so much for sharing your expeditions, your experience, your lessons learned um, from all manner of operational environment. For anyone who wants to find you, follow you, follow your lessons on social media, um, where can our audience learn more? Um, they can search me up, Johannes Nordstein Svensoy. Um, and... Um, yeah, on I'm not that much on social media, but I have a Twitter and Instagram account, so please follow. Perfect. So we will make sure that your links are included in the show notes. Thank you again so much for making the time today. Um, as always, thank you to the audience for joining us for today's Webcast podcast. And to learn more about our organization, what we do, check out uh, worldextrememedicine.com. Leave us a message on social media. And until next time, Dr. Shauna Pandya, looking forward to the next episode. Thank you.